You're entering the GOAT Zoom Room. You're entering the GOAT Zoom Room. I'm Andy Villanueva. Uh, Caitlin Free is still busy with stuff going on in her life, so it's just me again today, and we have uh, a vet on as we finish, like, trying to figure out this whole Baffert situation and the plausibilities of this happening to a trainer more than once in a lifetime, let alone eight times or nine times or forever many times he's been caught. But we have uh, Dr. Catherine Papon. Uh, you've seen her on Twitter. She pretty much is doesn't hold anything back, and that's why I wanted to bring her on. And thank you for taking a few minutes out of your time, 20, 25 minutes out of your time to just discuss the whole, the whole situation and plausibilities that we have going on. No problem. I'm always willing to try to educate and make the industry better. So anything we can all understand and do better and notice will hopefully make a difference going forward. So hearkening back, um, most, most of our listeners know I've been in the business for 30 plus years as a hot walker, groom, bloodstock agent, jockey. I've done it all. Um, how did you get your start? What, what gravitated you toward being a horse veterinarian? Well, first of all, it's interesting that that's your history because uh, I think people with that kind of history understand the industry best, to be honest, that have done all those different aspects because it was hard for me. I did not grow up um, having anything to do with horse racing, actually. I grew up anti-racing for the most part. I uh, led a very sheltered life. My parents focused on education for me. I went to a private school, was mostly boarding school, even though I didn't board there. Um, I had international show jumpers, so I had uh, did you know a lot of show jumping, show horses, the expensive, lose money at all, you know, places kind of deal. And Monmouth Park wasn't far from us because I was, I grew up in Freehold, New Jersey. So we were only talking about half an hour away or so. Um, but racehorses were never, and I was close to Freehold Raceway, um, which is the standard breads. But, um, you know, obviously I was just entered into a, a spoiled brat kind of early uh, development with horses. And my opinion from what I had seen was that horse racing looked quite uh, abusive and uh, went through undergrad, always knew I wanted to be a horse vet since day one, guaranteed. There was never anything else I wanted to do. I went to uh, undergrad at University of Vermont, took a year off to ride um, just for the year and work at a vet clinic and then went to University of Guelph in Ontario. I had a few options for vet school, Oklahoma, um, Ross, and uh, I can't remember. It's been so long now. Um, ended up going to the University of Guelph, which is in near Toronto um, in Canada, right across the border, easily to get to Buffalo. And I got to ride with some top riders there and uh, also got experience going to Woodbine um, while being there. And afterwards, I did an internship uh, in Massachusetts between Tufts University and a private practice and kind of recruited to a practice in Fair Hill as my first real job um, 
from there. So, and that was back in 2009. And uh, that is where my experience with thoroughbred racehorses began. Um, And actually, the owner of the practice there is a previous president of the AAP on all of the racing, very high profile in racing as far as veterinarians go. Um, So it was a uh, we were based out of the Michael Matz barn at Fair Hill. So literally we, I was immersed immediately then. So, and I, it's gone from there to this. <laughs> I was just going to say, um, you know, Fair Hill has some pretty competent trainers there. They have a uh, ground motion, Michael Trombetta, um, the gentleman you mentioned, Michael Matz, just to name a few. I think um, oh, Mike Moran was there. Yeah, um, back uh, in the day, you I know, can't think of the gentleman, but he used to have the Haas. Um, oh, I don't remember his name. Oh, Holy, wait, um, Michael Dickinson. Oh, yeah, Dickinson. because then before he got out of the business and had this, yeah. in fact, his own farm is now on the sale to PETA Farm. It's yeah. uh, it's for sale for like 12 million dollars right now, in case anyone's looking. Yeah, so I mean, obviously, obviously, there's a lot of good horsemen in that area that. Yep. I would, I would venture to say do not have very many positive tests between all of them. Well, I don't even think they add to the amount of positive tests that, that Bob Baffert has had in his lifetime. And, you know, I've been in a situation to where I worked for Richard Mandel. I worked for Jude Feld. I've been in barns that have been, that have been top of the line. I've also been in barns that have done things a little shadily, right? So to say. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, back in the day, it used to be common practice for horses to get injected, you know, 72 hours before a race with uh, the same exact medications that are being used now that are now supposed to be two weeks out. Yeah, when I was and, younger, I watched the standard breads get injected literally before they got on the van. Oh, geez. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not, it, it, and, you know, there was always that saying, there was always that common, common understanding that the more you inject, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, but the more you inject a horse's joints, the more lesions they produce later on in life and could cause problems down the road. And so to me, I always felt like it was, kind of like a last-ditch effort to do it. And if a horse mm-hmm. is going to have that, that situation, I would rather just take a step back and let the horse just tell me when he's ready to run again. Right. Is, that, is that what you would feel is the best situation for a racehorse is instead of having to use, you know, medical... Not medical these days, pluses? to be honestly. No, um, because of the way we've bred our thoroughbreds, which have not increased their speed in decades as far as the standard breads have improved their times. And, um, but through our breeding of the thoroughbreds, we've really bred a weaker thoroughbred horse and horses in general that are, uh, go through the training and, uh, athleticism racing, wear and tear that racehorses do, whether they're excellent racehorses or, you know, mediocre or poor racehorses as far as their skill level, they are all going to develop 
arthritis. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. No racehorse ends up with no arthritis. I mean, um, even horses that don't do much in the paddock, they're just prone to it being big and heavy on small little legs. Uh, and so knowing that, we try to be preventative, um, you know, as far as just giving you an idea of my husband, who's a third generation horseman, and he had the old school kind of experience you do at this almost the same time level. He was back in the day, his father and him trained the very one um, and, for a while. And, uh, you know, the rule that, like you had said, it was accepted. Well, he said the, the what he used to hear all the time back then was, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. So we have a very different perspective on things. And we now try to do Adequan preventatively, um, which is just an IM supplemental injection to help with cartilage health growing up uh, for the youngsters. We x-ray them. We make sure they don't have issues. We try to put them on early supplementation, but um, change up the surfaces that they ride in. That's how a lot of the trainers, the great trainers you were talking about at Fair Hill, uh, will use. They have hard roads to jog on, which is good for bone density. They have the tapita track, the turf track, trails, and the dirt out there. So that's for end turnout. So that's helpful, um, especially for their lungs. But as far as injecting joints, I, I, I'm not anti-therapeutic medication. I am just willy-nilly guessing oh, so-and-so's hawks look a little puffy, I think they'll run better and injecting them with steroids. We have so many more options these days, you wouldn't believe. Um, even Bob referenced in one injection, in one, uh, actually in his hearing for Arkansas, that he injected beta-methasone with hyaluronic acid, which is a joint fluid replacement into gamine. And uh, so, some people just replace the fluid. Let's say they, you know, tweak an ankle and they x-ray it, it looks fine, but all that bad fluid in there builds up and those have inflammatory mediators on their own that can cause damage. So it's a good thing to drain the fluid and replace it. Um, and sometimes add something that will quiet down the body's overreaction. It's just like a bee sting. If you get stung by the bee, it's not the bee sting that really causes all the redness, heat, swelling, pain. It's the body's overreaction. So I like to use a lot of the new regenerative therapies, IRAP, PRP. These are platelet-rich plasma, interleukin receptor antagonist protein, things we harvest from their blood that have naturally occurring anti-inflammatories um, and almost stem cell-like properties in helping healing for the cartilage in the joints. Those are my preferences. However, if there's an inflammatory process going on and I'm not just using it as a preventative, I'm, I'm seeing this horse has kind of been working hard, does have some arthritis, but it's not in any inherent danger of, uh, of cracking its cannon bones, so on and so forth. I don't see fissures or anything worrisome, flattening of the condyles. Then I will use steroids, uh, corticosteroids. And uh, the main options usually are triamcinolone, which is Vetalog. It's fast acting and potent. Beta-methasone, which is the one everyone's been talking about, which is has a fast acting component and then a longer acting component. Tends to be the most expensive of the bunch. Depomedrol, which is methylprednisolone, has a very long acting effect and very potent, 
So therefore, if a horse does have an underlying condition, I tend to use that very rarely because you can cover up something and then I won't see that client again for until it's a really bad problem. And then we have things like isofluprodone, pre-def and other ones like that that are used less commonly. So I'm not against using it. I think it's appropriate when used um, in appropriate manner. I think that if you're going to use it, though, you don't be breezing. You shouldn't be breezing the horse two days out. Okay. Just like Gamine yeah, was agree. injected and <laughs> that she goes and breezes a bunch of times. So if, if that was the correct date. Um, so the whole idea is any horse in active race training, we should, if we're treating them for an injury, that's enough inflammation that we're going to treat them with the joint injection of corticosteroids to calm it down. Then they should be either, you know, walked, turned out jogged or put on some sort of list where they can't breeze for a certain period of time. We're not supposed to be doing it. And it's even described by the American Association of Equine Practitioners. We're not supposed to be injecting horses with the purpose of having them feel their best for a race. We do it for humane purposes and for medical treatment. We don't do it to make them race better. And unfortunately, it has become a the veterinarians are asked to, told to, whatever you want to say, uh, do it to make the horses perform better when they need to be at their peak. That's the problem. So with, with all that being said, um, I want to turn, I want to go back to the beta methazone for a second. Um, because when it came out that what Bob used was to, for lack of a better word, you know, treat a rash on a behind, Mm -hmm. Um, a number one, I know for a fact, I, I, I know it's for cats and I, I know it's for dogs, even though it says that or Merck came out and said, well, you could use it for equine, but mm -hmm. they're, they basically put on there for dog use, right? So mm -hmm. yes, you could use it for another animal, but you don't. Well, uh, the thing is a lot of, and, and I know some other places have interviewed other veterinarians and they have equine veterinarians who have claimed to use Odomax uh, frequently in their equine practice. And of course, that's their choice. I, there's so many generic uh, alternatives that are cheaper, in my opinion, that work better. Um, to give you an example, if I had a rash on a horse, like the one that appeared on uh, Medina Spirit, there's a product by the company Kinetic called CK um, Shield and there's CKHC. So that stands for chlorhexidine, which is a scrub. A lot of people know it's an antibacterial. Ketoconazole is the K. So it's an antifungal. It's actually one of the most potent ones we have. And then there's with and without hydrocortisone. So that I mean, works on scratches really well, all sorts of rain rot things. It's an amazing product. They make it in a spray, a shampoo, and an ointment. And there's a ton of them like that. So like I said, hydrocortisone is another similar um, corticosteroid to betamethasone. Uh, yet it would get out of the system a lot faster uh, the way if you were to use one of these other products. So, you know, it, like I said, it's up to each practitioner and they may have a they may believe that um, gentamicin, which is something we usually use to treat respiratory and uh, skin infections intravenously, 
um, may have the antibacterial effect they want and or the anti-yeast effect from the um, what I think it's clembazole or uh, clomitrazole um, and the betamethasone is for inflammation and I don't know how inflamed that rash was, but it didn't look super inflamed in any of the pictures I had seen of it. I mean, it definitely looked uh, like there was something going on. But as far as inflammation, we think heat, swelling, pain, redness. I mean, like a hive. I, I you know, I just, I didn't see much of evidence of that, but maybe it's because he was being treated in those pictures that I've seen. Though, so like then, I said, you know, wouldn't be my choice. So then, so then the question without trying to put you on the spot is how much would have been needed to have done, to have gotten that big of a positive if that is indeed what happened? Well, he did claim to have been applying it from the time of the Santa Anita Derby to the day before the Kentucky Derby. So that's a significant period of time. And that what looked like a relatively large area to be treating. Um, and then subsequent comments from the Kentucky Racing um, uh, Regulatory Board said that they had records showing that there was a prescription for Otomax uh, prescribed on the 9th and 19th of April. So you're thinking two containers of Otomax and uh I would assume he went through both of those leading up to the derby. And if you're slathering it on once a day, you're also bathing horses. So I don't know, you know, how much would be because he was, it is very um, sticky ointment. So it's in a petroleum base. It's not super well absorbed through intact skin. Uh, and if you're bathing that horse every day, then I mean, unless he put it on and didn't bath the horse or went through a direct wound, I would think with the percentage of betamethasone that's in that ointment, it would have had to been, I just don't think it's possible personally. In fact, I'm, maybe I'll try it on one of my horses today and see if I can measure their blood. <laughs> you know, and I carry Automax around for my dog. I mean, maybe I'll just put it on one of my horses and see what it does because it seems like a simple thing to try to do. I mean, my, 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 bigger, my bigger scenario is this, based on what you just said. And if it was described this, I think more questions would be asked. And the big one would be, well, how many other horses at the barn that this groom was taking care of with this stuff did he touch? How many other ones ended up coming out with um, with positive tests or close to positive tests? Right. And, and personally, the I just one think is, it's bullshit. I don't think they were using the cream. I don't think well, the no, cream no, is I'm, what caused the positive. <laughs> I totally, I, I'm, I'm with you. I'm just... Yeah. I'm playing devil's advocate to the yep, no good. that people are people are sitting here going, you know, there's two sides. To, there's, you know, the story. There's three sure. sides to the story. My, and my issue is, you know, being on that side of the fence is so different than being on the fan side of the fence a lot of times because right. there are things that, that go on on a daily basis, a group. A groom has to rub four horses a day. If he's putting that stuff on one horse, he's got to be putting it on four. 
wiping it on the towel, you know, everything. Exactly. Everything. So explain to me how it is that only one of his horses got it. And it goes back to the whole deal with Gamine. It goes back to the whole deal with Charlatan. Um, right. And I was looking at, I was while I was doing some research for a short little piece that I wrote on the for the website, I had I had basically noticed that the one thing that really fried me were the were the positive tests that he received from prior to the eight horse incident earlier in in the 2010s mm-hmm. to 2016 and on where he had like five or six positives one took the other ones were all suspended or he took it he took a fine but there were no suspensions absolutely yeah. none nope so lots of mitigating uh, circumstances <laughs> but how many mitigating circumstances does one have to have is my question well i heard and, from somebody that said, uh, for you know, things can be mitigating circumstances for only so long before they become aggravating circumstances. So I, agree. I liked that line. <laughs> I've I have likened it, and I told this to to Catherine Terrell, and our listeners are going to start getting tired of me saying this, but <laughs> I honestly believe that Schlapprock and Cousin Oliver are working for Bob Baffert. That's the only reason why he keeps getting hit. That is a conspiracy. Yeah going on because there's no way um this could happen so if you were to be put in charge of say some worldwide medical medication department for all of horse racing what recommendations or what what race day stuff would you recommend they would be allowed to use and which you wouldn't I would allow race day electrolytes. Um, that's one thing I think is really important. I don't think it needs to be given. They don't think they need to be given through a needle. I think with the different um, environments that they run in, I think it's important to have their electrolytes quite balanced, especially with the high prevalent use of Lasix at this point in time anyway. And the fact that that leaches potassium and calcium, putting them at higher risks for muscle fatigue, um, cardiac arrhythmias and whatnot, I think electrolyte supplementation and balancing are important. Um, that's one thing I can think of that I would allow on race day. Um, if a horse is getting a probiotic, you know, I think that's appropriate again, but all these things would have to be monitored and tested because anybody could put something in a different container and say they're giving such and such when it's really something completely different. So um, maybe that would have to be done by the Lasix. I don't see why now that we have third-party Lasix, why they couldn't give a syringe of electrolyte paste, you know, that that's been in their handling uh, at the same time as Lasix. That would be a good idea, actually. Because the one thing, one thing I don't think a lot of people understand is how far out they, they give Lasix mm-hmm. to horses. I think some people just think, oh, they just get it like, 20, 30 minutes before a race when it's actually like four hours. Mm-hmm. And what people aren't, what I don't think people understand when it comes to a racehorse is between then and the time of the race, they get no water, no food. Right. Once in a while, the tra- the groom or the trainer will put like a sponge in with water in it and that's yes. all they get. 
And Not everyone, just so we know, the majority, because we, we majority. keep our horses on hay because we believe that, you know, the buffering of the stomach, we don't want them to have ulcers when they're running, splashing acid down there, you know, but okay. you're right, the majority of people after Lasix withdraw all water and food, hay, whatnot, what and tie them up usually, you know, at the receiving barn and ice them, do whatever the hell they're going to do. Yeah, and... And my point was, is that I think that I, and this is to agree with you, I think some sort of electrolyte prior to race day would actually help them out a lot more um, due to the fact that, you know, they are a little bit more tightened up. They are a little bit more dehydrated prior to even going into the starting gate. And, and the shippers especially. Yeah, especially the shippers because the shippers have so many, sometimes people just ship horses in, you know, or yeah. or two hours before, and the horse hasn't isn't allowed to drink on the butt on the. I mean, it's just ridiculous how things are breakfast. these days. Yeah, no, I agree. It, it borders on the inhumane. Yeah, so I mean, my, can you imagine my other being question, that thirsty going into a race? I really just personally can't because I know I how hot either. I am and and thirsty after a hard day at you know, working one of my appointments and all I want is to like throw down a two liter bottle of Gatorade, you know? So, um, I can't imagine how the horses feel. And from the jocks that I've heard that I've taken Lasix to, you know, make weight. I mean, we've had one almost like pass out off of a horse. So, you know, it, it strikes me as being, we're giving it intravenously. Also, that's another thing that I, you know, it's, we're giving it directly going directly to the kidneys and the liver we're not giving an oral pill like they do to the humans so this is a very fast acting you're going from very hydrated or hopefully very hydrated to significantly dehydrated and depleted within a very short period of time like you said their urine literally you can watch it within an hour go from cloudy because it's made out of mucus and calcium to completely clear and yeah. that's a dramatic thing. And it takes, they've proven uh, usually approximately two weeks to recover from those losses. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's some of the things that, some of the, it's, it's funny talking to somebody uh, like my wife who doesn't, who, who doesn't understand horse racing. When I try to explain some of these things, she's mm -hmm. like, that, that doesn't seem right. And I'm like, <laughs> it is that's how everyone else sees it in the world right, right exactly correct so one of the final questions i'm going to ask here you have you you have a background with standard breads you had these sgf i want to say 3000 but i could be wrong 1000 it's sgf 1000 and there is an actual product sgf 1000 made by a good company that is not the sgf 1000 that they were using the Navarro and service and whoever else on the indictment it was a compounded version just so we know because I don't uh, that company probably got vilified more than it needed to but what they were getting for SGF 1000 was not the kind you look up under the company and find the ingredients to be innocuous okay <laughs> so so what so I guess my question is is how much of that how much of the stuff that Navarro and service got obviously it's undetectable because they're well aware it's undetectable but how mm -hmm. much of it do you feel because I personally don't know other than watching horses improve dramatically 
Um, how much of it is attributed to them improving horses or is it just they're better trainers? No, I think uh, we live in the, the days of the super trainer. And I mean, look how many years we looked for a triple crown, you know, another triple crown winner. And then we have so many come close. And then the ones that do make it are, you know, Baffert and then the service horse that, you know, won, but then DQ'd from the Derby. It was like, all of a sudden, that's when these things came into light. And um, there's a lot of things. So the number one agent, I would say that's used frequently and undetectably, and I've seen the bottles in the garbage, I've read the wiretaps are um, blood doping agents. So erythropoietin um, substitutes. So your body, the kidney makes a erythropoietin which stimulates the bone marrow to produce more red blood cells so if you were going to go train in the alps your body would uh tell your bone marrow to produce more red blood cells because you're at a higher altitude and you can't uh carry as much oxygen and these things then are given we give them to cats and dogs with renal failure they're given to people with anemia from chemotherapy they're given to the horses and then makes them produce more red blood cells. More red blood cells equals carrying more oxygen to your muscles, to your heart, to your tissues, everything. And that is a massive performance enhancer. And just like Lance Armstrong. And um, the whole point is when you give it, it's undetectable after being given in the blood for after three to five days. You cannot find evidence of it anywhere in the blood or urine. Yet it takes approximately 30 days to really have its maximal effect and it'll last for approximately 90. You can't keep redosing it. And there's probably at least 10 different derivatives of the same blood doper um, that you can use. So it's not just one that everyone uses. There's a zillion different versions. And I'd say that's probably our biggest, uh, that and some of the, non-detectable painkillers like the demorphine the frog juice we heard about a few years back something similar to that uh, i've always wanted to understand that and you just made it a lot easier for me to understand <laughs> uh, and i appreciate you coming on because this has been very informative and exactly what i wanted to end this whole kind of effort segment to yeah. be a three-part kind of deal but uh, Caitlin likes to play a game, so we're going to play a game. And by the way, I kept forgetting to go. If anybody doesn't know who the very one is, the very one was a, a mare that ran. Oh, geez, probably and she was a small 70s. mare. Mm -hmm. huh? yep. Yeah, it was in the 70s and 80s. She was a small mare because I get to yeah. hear these stories all the time and how they ran mm -hmm. her without shoes at Penn when she won and almost broke the record. <laughs> yeah, and she almost won it. She almost won a grade one at Santa Anita. Um, mm -hmm. And that's how I know her, uh, because my dad talked about that race, the Santa Margarita, quite a bit when he was when he was alive. Uh, but uh, there's a states race named after her also now. Yes, there is. Uh, where is it at? I forget. It just went at. off the other day when I was watching the Preakness. I think it was. So I was, it was jumping back and forth the coverage between, I think it must've been in Maryland. I think, yes, Maryland, I think. I think it is. Yeah. Well, there's sure. one in Gulfstream Park. 
Then that might have been it. Yeah, it's Gulfstream Park had one. Okay. So yeah, it's Gulfstream. Looks like it's run in May sometime. Yeah, yeah. you're right. That's when it was. Small world. Yeah, I know it was recently because I was thinking about her the other day. I get your stories all the time. <laughs> so Caitlin likes to play this game, so we always play it. Um, okay. It's called it's kind of fun, but it's also really stressful for our, for our people because sometimes they get put on the spot. Doesn't bother me. Okay, good. So if you own, if you owned, you obviously own racehorses, um, mm -hmm. but if you were to own one that's running currently, what track would you like to win a race at, a stakes race at, and what type of stakes race would it be? Ooh, I think Saratoga. And I'm not sure. Maybe the Travers. The Travers. So <laughs> because it's like, what is it? I call it the great what the graveyard of champions or something like that. Yeah. I would like to break that spell. I suppose if I ever, if my family ever had a horse, and you know, we only uh, run horses that we my family breeds so we literally raise them nobody gets sold they all come with their own escrow accounts they're all our horses and they stay with us for life so it would be something that would have been a lifelong dream you know what i mean we raise yeah. train and keep so um that would be and all the mares we got were doped horses as you were talking about we had two that were doped by uh the indicted trainers in new york that's how I got oh. our foundation mares. Not because we tried to get into breeding, um, but because they came to me to be fixed. And uh, then they stayed. So that's that's kind of cool. That, like, <laughs> it's crazy, really cool. but yeah. <laughs> and then the final, uh, and then another question that she likes to ask is, and this you can decline to answer this one, but if you had to choose any trainer, living or, or deceased or however retired, who would you want training that horse? Charlie Whittingham. Ah. But I have to say my husband, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't count. I know. That's what I always tell him. And then the final one is if you could pick any rider to ride it, who would you ride him? Who would you ride? Hmm. <laughs> That's a good one. I think probably Frankie Tori. First one for Frankie. Pretty cool. <laughs> Usually we don't have a Frankie. Usually it's more like um, Jerry Bailey. Uh, Mike Smith hasn't gotten a lot of votes, which is kind of strange. And it's funny because uh, my husband's friends with one of his Mike's good friends and we know a lot of um you know what um we we are we are good friends with ramon dominguez so i i'd have to pick him i'd have to have co-pick him i i jokingly say that ramon ramon has has my uh mail address on speed dial that's hilarious i love ramon and i think he's one of the greatest guys ever to have been in racing and he's known my husband for ages and your He's one of the most. Stephen tomorrow, yeah. right? What? Right. What, nope. What's your husband's? Uh, Monty Neal Sims. He runs under. Oh, okay. uh, yeah, there's three of them though. His grandfather was Monty Sims. His dad was Monty Sims, and. He's Monty Sims. So they all ran under their middle names. Um, 
because actually his dad was general manager at Spendthrift and his granddad uh, rode Seattle Slough on the farm. So it's a long history of them all being jump jocks and stuff. That's a a lot of history right there. I know. I get to hear it all from the Oscar Barrera days because I'm I'm 20 years younger than him. So it's interesting, though, to hear about back in the day, like you talked about when things were more accepted. And even he's come around from when we met, I don't know, we've been married seven or eight years before that it's changed a lot so oh it has it really has it's a different type of racing now and yeah it's quite interesting but I'm, I'm glad you came on um i'm if if i have any questions we're bringing you back on regardless <laughs> you're always welcome to you. even if you just ask me a question send me a message you know i'm always willing to answer so or look it up oh. if i don't know it yeah, I, I think uh, Jermaine Bridgemahan, who's a good friend of mine, has said that he wants to do a podcast. He wants to do a, a live call-in radio show, and we might do that with you, too. Hey, you never know. I think, so, like I said, I really think the tides are turning, so let's, you know, keep the ball rolling. Yeah, let's do it. But thanks a lot. We appreciate it, and I'm sorry Caitlin couldn't be here, but all the information you provided today was incredible. Incredibly, incredibly, incredibly useful, and uh, you know I appreciate everything, uh, especially Absolutely. the fact that that you are willing to to put yourself out there and you know basically help out people to to make them more informed. That's my goal, and the best to Caitlin and you know her family and to you guys. And I'm glad that you're trying to provide this information to people because I'm pretty much a recluse. I hate people in general. So um, I'd much rather talk or text to people rather than ever do anything in person. So by being able to talk to you guys and collect information from other people um, and passing it around, I really think it's going to help our industry. So thank you, too. Thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, that was that was uh, Dr. Catherine Papp. And we will be back next week with another edition of the GOAT Zoom Room. Thank you for listening and have a good week.